Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files. If you think about my career and how quickly from vice president at Hooters at 26 and president at Cinnabon at 32 and then taking over and really growing the global channels division. Meet Kat Cole from Hooters waitress to chief operating officer of Focus Brands, the food giant that owns Cinnabon, Carvel ice cream, and Aunt Annie's pretzels. How she learns about customers by digging through the trash. Seriously. Her answer on the minimum wage debate, which may surprise you. And her most important and meaningful chapter yet. She's about to become a mother. Also, lessons from her own mother, who raised her and her siblings on a food budget of just $10 a week. She had to make a tough choice. Leave a husband that had actually the best job of anyone on either side of our family providing security for the family, or go out on her own to protect the safety of her children. Here's my conversation with Kat Cole. Kat Cole, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Mom-to-be in just a few weeks. Congratulations. Thank you. So excited. And a huge promotion. Yes. It all comes at once. (laughs) All at once. No stress, no pressure. Let's talk about the new role, Chief Operating Officer, President of North America for Focus yeah. Brands. Wow. So yeah. fast. Yes. <laughs> what a rise and a huge rise from the beginning of your career as a waitress at Hooters when you were in college working towards uh, your degree. You've talked a lot about, and I find it fascinating, the skills learned there doing yeah. that job help you immensely where you are now as one of the big bosses. Yeah. Why? You know, I think part of it is just the service industry. You're so, as a waitress, you're so close to the customer. So if you do something wrong, you'd immediately see the outcome. There's no tip. You immediately are punished for poor service. So there's not a big gap between the behavior and the consumer outcome. Mm. And I think that it certainly for me, it trained a muscle to be very clear that whatever happens that is closest to the user, the consumer, whatever that is, um, is literally the driver for the business. And I don't allow myself to get disillusioned that what is happening at an office or somewhere much more distant from where the employee is working with the customer is more impactful or even close to what's happening on the front lines. Or in the corner office, which you are increasingly (laughs) in now in your role. Um, So after your time working at Hooters as a waitress, Mm -hmm. you took, I believe, a 50% pay cut to go into the corporate side of it. A lot of people wouldn't be surprised to hear that. Yeah, I did. You know, when you're a waitress, you can pick up shifts. Somebody always wants to go home. So I was working literally every, almost every hour I wasn't either sleeping or in class. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I was a pretty high earning waitress. But then when I took a corporate gig and you're living off of a salaried paycheck, mm-hmm. I think I was making 40 something thousand as a Hooters girl mm-hmm. uh, working literally, I don't know, 60, 70 hours mm-hmm. a week. Um, and when I took my first corporate job, my base pay was 21,000 and no longer able to just pick up a couple of cash paying shifts. So it was quite a lesson in money management. 
what was the reception like when you came into corporate from being yeah. a Hooters waitress? Because I guarantee that is not the trajectory of all of your fellow employees. So yeah. what was that? Like? It was mixed. You know, okay. on one hand, there was great appreciation for someone who knows the business. Yeah. And there were several internal promotions, but they were mostly, you know, field marketing and in management. So still at the store level, not as many mm-hmm. in the corporate office. However, there were two female executives who I worked for who themselves had been uh, either managers or promotional managers for Hooters, mm-hmm. and one of them a Hooters girl. So it wasn't the first time, but it certainly wasn't everyone in the office. Mm-hmm. So there were some that really appreciated since I was running employee training, I actually knew what the employees needed. On the other hand, I'm sitting in meetings and boardrooms with people who come from more traditional professional backgrounds and although we're all on a team and we're all working together to drive hopefully the same outcomes mm-hmm. you could feel a bit of the you know how why do you deserve to be here underestimating you yeah absolutely so i have found in my career being a young woman coming up right um not so young anymore but <laughs> was once um we're still young <laughs> okay i like your outlook that being underestimated was actually a big asset. Yeah. Because people didn't know what they were walking into. Absolutely. Do you find it that? I am such a fan of a low bar. (laughs) Because you, on one hand, you don't have to do much to exceed the expectations, Mm -hmm. but I set my own very high bar. So I appreciate when others have low expectations and I don't take it personally. I just enjoy the delight or surprise or shock (laughs) on their faces (laughs) when things go really well. Um, But for me, I remember... I don't want that to be my low bar. Mm. So I set a super high bar for myself, but I totally get it when maybe the expectations aren't very high from the outside. That has changed now that I'm in the, <laughs> the roles that I'm in now. As you have risen through the ranks uh, to this senior, senior position, you led Cinnabon, mm-hmm. for example, one of Focus Brands' key brands, to a billion dollars in annual sales. Yeah. As you look back on the ride so far, Kat, and it hasn't <laughs> been that long a ride no. because you've risen very quickly. Yeah. What has the ride, the journey been like, and how do you reflect on it now? Mm. You know, what's interesting is, one, if you think about my career and how quickly from vice president at Hooters at 26 and president at Cinnabon at 32 and then taking over and really growing the global channels division at, I guess it was 36, um, on one hand, there is this really interesting piece of these, whatever you want to call them, believers, advocates, people who looked at my very non-traditional background and still believed and were willing to put their name on me. Mm -hmm. And that cannot be overlooked as a massive component that Mm. not only am I grateful for, but I need to remember I'm now that person. For Um, others. For others. So that's a piece. Um, the The other piece is when I look back, you know, I think about how many times it worked out positively for the company Um, in terms of results when I was in an environment where I could bring my full self and where I didn't second guess my contributions or think in my head, "Mm, who am I to question Mm -hmm, them? mm -hmm. And I had those thoughts, but when the environment is such that people don't punish you for speaking out or there is enough of a focus on inclusion or pulling out contributions from diverse employees, I look back and think that actually drove results. You know, there were really things that I spoke up about when I was 26 or 29 or 32 Mm -hmm. that fundamentally benefited the company. And there are also times where moments where I didn't feel that way and I held back my thoughts. Maybe I over-indexed on humility or Mm. was experiencing imposter syndrome. You know, who am I? These people are so much more seasoned than me. 
and and I failed the team mm. and I failed the company when I didn't speak up. So when I look back, um, one of the lessons is one: be the type of leader that creates that kind of environment so that I get the fullest benefit mm. from all of the team, and be incredibly grateful for the environments I've been in, which as I read what's going on in the news in different industries and yeah. many, many friends, it's not always the case. Not, uh, often, unfortunately, is not. not the case. You say you had a lot of believers. Yeah. Who were your believers? Is there one person? Because <laughs> I have that too. Yeah. And I try now to be that to others. Uh, who was your one believer? Uh, you know, on one hand, like many, I'm sure I have my mom, who was sure. single parent, raised three kids, left our father when I was nine, fed our family on a food budget of ten dollars a week. Oh. You know, she's the ultimate believer, always saying you can do anything, even though there weren't really examples of people with white collar jobs or professional careers in on either side of my family, with very few exceptions. She just believed. But all along the way, it was women and men, but actually a lot of women. I didn't work for a man until I worked for the CEO of Hooters. Wow. Every boss was a woman. Every general manager at Hooters, every executive at the corporate office, which is just interesting. Yeah. And my first general manager at Hooters, Bonnie, um, she was the first person to hold me accountable and treat me like an adult in business when I was 18 years old and picking up multiple shifts. And she's the person who recommended me when the corporate office called and said, we need a top employee to go to Australia and help open the first ever franchise there when I was 19. I'd never been on a plane. Wow. I didn't have a passport. And she still recommended me. And so there were early believers and then down the road, um, there, there's one leader in particular from our private equity firm that I met when I was in my mid-20s at an industry conference. And I loved what they were doing at Rourke and Focus Brands. And I was just a young executive at Hooters. Mm -hmm. And they saw me leading a political action committee, like raising funds for local business owners. And he sat me down and said, you have something special. You're bigger than your role. Let's stay in touch. Wow. And we stayed in touch, and um, to no surprise, I ended up working in I a portfolio <laughs> company. <laughs> yeah, your mom. Yeah, I didn't know that. I've known you for a long time, Kat, and we've done a number of interviews, and I didn't know yeah. that about your mom. Yeah, raised your family on ten dollars a week for yeah. food. Yeah, tell me more about her. Yeah, you know she. Um, didn't go to college, youngest of, of six kids. Her father died when she was young, so she was raised by a single parent. So there's a little bit of that repeating patterns, which is negative, but on the positive side, she saw incredible resilience. So she's just the type of woman that can figure things out and, and make it happen. And she had the courage to leave. My father was an alcoholic mm -hmm. and good man, but terrible husband and father at the time. And she had to make a tough choice, leave a husband that had actually the best job of anyone on either side of our family providing security for the family right. um, or go out on her own to protect the safety of her children. Seems like easy in retrospect but difficult no, at the time. No, it's never easy. Um, and we went out on our own and she worked multiple jobs and so that's the leadership example I grew up with and every year on my birthday card she writes some version of don't forget where you came from but don't you dare ever let it solely define you. And so this concept of your, you know, your fruits are in your roots. This is this is you. You got a, uh, a little a little dose of Jacksonville, Florida in you mm -hmm. always, and you have this history of seeing not so good things and some good things. But let that be your roots, but don't let it be your anchor. And she's always reminding me of that. It's actually a philosophy I use for brands and companies. And now, what about a philosophy as you become a mom? Do oh. you think about? Yeah, I, I do um, daily, and I, my husband. We talk about this all the time of um, 
and, and a lot of my friends and I talk about this concept of when you're when you're better off than your parents were yeah. financially, lifestyle. Yeah. How do you still focus on instilling the virtues and the lessons and the behaviors that for both of us have been shaped by a difficult upbringing? Do you have to have a crappy childhood? Hmm to actually come out on the other side resilient. There's lots of examples of people who have had wonderful upbringings and are are incredibly resilient and Mm -hmm. successful, Mm -hmm. but I think about it often, not to take the fact that my life is better than my mother's was for granted and to be conscious about the experience that my child has as he grows up. And making them, I know for me, I, you know, my parents encouraged me slash made me get a job really early on. That's right. I mean, like 13, years old and yeah. a lot of kids work sooner than that but it teaching that early on no matter how fortunate you are it it's important absolutely um you have talked a little bit about your broader family your extended family and not being raised surrounded by executives do mm. you think that that has actually made you a better executive now it's interesting in my early career what i recognized is because of my upbringing i had a disassociation between success and money. So my father actually had a good job. Mm -hmm. He made money, but things weren't good. So I grew up from a young, and we had Christmas presents, and we um, had a a playhouse in the backyard. We had two cars. Uh, This was, of course, before we were on our own and then very poor with just my mom. So in my mind, from a young age, having nice things does not equal happiness. And because of that disassociation between material things and happiness, Mm -hmm. I didn't have money or title or job as an aspiration. I actually um, almost uh, mentally and emotionally separated from it. All I wanted to do was learn and all I wanted to do was be somewhere different tomorrow than I am today, Mm. which is not always the most productive philosophy. Just because you're moving doesn't mean you're moving in the right direction. But in my mind, um, getting out of there, being somewhere different, Mm -hmm. a different country, a a different community, was learning. And so it made me more of a um, learning and hippie. Listening executive? (laughs) Learning, listening, hippie executive, (laughs) and far less of one with very specific traditional goals. Well, oftentimes if you chase the title and you chase the money, you forget about what am I meant to do and where's my happiness. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So your mom taught you something, the hustle muscle. (laughs) What is the hustle muscle, Kat? So it's this little hashtag that I coined, hashtag hustle muscle. And I was doing some speeches in my mid-20s and talking about the the story where I said yes to going to Australia before I ever had been on a plane or had a passport. And small detail. A small detail. <laughs> and as I moved up in business and started investing in entrepreneurs and advising mm-hmm. startups, I realized that I heard a lot of people starting to glamorize entrepreneurship and say, say yes before you're ready. And, and because I was so involved in women's development, yeah. it is one of the larger gaps technically between the gender behaviors, which is women tend to want to be more capable, qualified, and borderline perfectionist before they'll apply for a job or raise their hand, whereas men will have three out of the 10 skills, again, generalizing and say, I'm ready, pick me. Right. Uh, so there was a lot of energy over the last, call it five to seven years around say yes before you're ready. But the part that I learned is that that is only one half 
the other half is you'd better have the hustle muscle, mm. the, the, the energy, the desire, the work ethic, the curiosity to close the gap between what you don't have, since you are saying yes before you're ready, and what others who are qualified would have. So you don't fail those that are putting their name on you. So it's say yes before you're ready, but have the hustle muscle but to you close better the get gap ready and like crush fast. it. <laughs> yeah. You better get ready fast. You've also said that there are characteristics that transcend industries and job titles. And yeah. specifically, we've talked before about confidence, courage, and being humble at the same time, yeah. no matter how high you rise. Yeah. I um, Some of the biggest mistakes I've made in my career, or that I have observed when others, others have really... <laughs> Like shit, the bed <laughs> um, have been over-indexing on one or the other. Okay. So the times that I have over-indexed on humility and curiosity. Uh, if you over-index on humility and curiosity, you're a you're a student, you're a researcher, you're a learner. It doesn't make you a great leader. Mm. But if you over-index on courage and confidence, and it's not blended and harmonized with curiosity and humility, you're just a bull in a china shop. And yeah, you'll probably get things done short term, but no one will follow you. And I have, when I've reflected on my biggest mistakes, um, my biggest learning uh, in a career, the, I think one of the big observations is I am at my best when I am conscious of and pulling forward those two buckets of mm. characteristics. So as soon as I feel that I'm maybe getting a little too out in front, mm -hmm too courageous, too confident, I will pause and gut check or, or make sure I have team members that help me do that to say, hey, are we pausing to listening um, or are we getting too caught up in our own belief systems or hype? And likewise, if I'm being too curious uh -huh. and too humble and, and having those thoughts, man, who am I to question that? The answer is I'm the freaking president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if I don't question it, no one will. And uh, yes. those have been tough lessons to learn. Have you ever over-indexed on one of those and had it actually cost you? Because it sounds oh, like you've, yeah. you've caught yourself, but have you actually had it cost you, made a, a, a pretty big error totally. or mistake? When I uh, first became president of Cinnabon, it was my first president gig, 32 years old, had been at Hooters for 15 years. Now I'm in a new company, new industry, and, right. and the number one seat. And there was an initiative going on in the company. And uh, I was asked or told to communicate to the franchisees what was going on. We were launching a new licensed product okay. and an alternative channel. So I told them what the product was. I described it. Uh, what I didn't know is that the team that was focusing on that product in the alternative channel was changing things as I was communicating to the franchisees. And I started to see different packaging floating around and different labels. And I had the thought, that doesn't look like what I just told our franchisees right. is happening. Oh. Um, but surely they wouldn't change it. And then who am I to question them? They've been in business longer than I've been alive. I mean, that's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was this moment of I, I'm, I'm seeing something and my spidey sense says that that doesn't jive. Yeah. But I way over indexed on humility and said, you know, I, I should just not push on that. And within days of those things occurring, the product changed, commercialized in over 400 high-volume retail locations. It was completely uh, different than what I told our franchisees. It looked like I had lied, created a bait-and-switch just to get them comfortable with what it was. Wow, and they were stunned and they, they felt betrayed. They felt, at, they literally called and said, you lied. Um, this, and it's almost, you think, I always tell people, you know the feeling when you look in the rearview mirror and you see police lights, yes. and you're, you're, but you really don't know what you did. I had that feeling when the founder of Cinnabon sent me an email with three letters and font size 90 
whiskey tango foxtrot. Oh my <laughs> question gosh. mark, question mark, question mark. And I thought, and that's, he's such a gentle man. It's, it's not his style. And I thought, what happened? And I get on the phone with him and he describes it. And all of a sudden, little puzzle pieces start coming together in my mind. And, and I followed up with them. And it was, it was so difficult. Um, all the franchisees flew in. I had to not only uh, apologize and say, this is not this is not the way we do business. It's not the way I do business. We're better than this. But also say, I clearly wasn't close enough yeah, to what was going to on. What, to, to what was going yeah. on. Yeah, and it helped us put systems in place that prevented problems like that in the future. But I lost trust. Wow. And other than losing a life, losing trust is probably number two or three behind that. It's very uh, uh, hard to earn and super, super easy to lose. And it was the worst, absolutely the worst period in my career. I was in tears every night for weeks going home because I felt like such a loser. It's um, like your reputation. It takes years uh, to build up and a second for to sure. lose. But we did the right thing and fixed the initiative, communicated, and to this day the franchisees t- still tell that story mm. of how we did the right thing for the right reasons. But it's not just that you fix it. A lot of leaders fix their mistakes, but th- a lot of them also then lose their job. Yeah. And they lose the confidence of the company or the board or the employees. Yeah. How did you regain the trust? Yeah. And then get a promotion on top of it. <laughs> you know, part of it is working with super high integrity leaders and owners. Uh, if we didn't have as high integrity of an ownership group who would have said, too bad, I value the business over those relationships mm. because technically we didn't violate any contracts. We just right. handled it incredibly poorly and we were moving so fast in innovation divisions. We didn't have the checks and balances or the processes necessary to avoid something like this. Yeah. Um, but they were so high integrity that when I came to the CEO and he went to the board and said, we're going to have to kill this deal. We're going to have to walk away from millions in EBITDA because we did not handle it properly. Uh, properly. The, the business is right. The product is right. The partner is right. Everything was right. We were selling 70,000 units a week. I mean, it was crazy. Wow. Uh, and they said, we support you because we realize in franchising, the relationship is everything. everything. doesn't matter if we didn't violate a contract. Yeah. And what I said to the CEO is, if, if I am expected to move this business forward, it will be 10 times harder to move the tiniest bit of innovation if we don't handle this the right way. It was very clearly a culture-defining mm-hmm. moment. And so a high-integrity CEO, a high-integrity ownership group yeah. um, was, was a big part of that. And the other piece was, I didn't wallow in it. We fixed it. We improved systems, but then we actually grew that division yeah. of the business in large part because we had gained the trust of the franchisees. So what's the hot shot rule? <laughs> I love the hot shot rule. What is it? I heard a speaker once talking about um, being your own best self-coach and that there are techniques to look at yourself and your environment with fresh eyes that if more people employed, it would allow them to be more effective as human beings. And it resonated with me. And so I started playing this game, which was the hotshot rule. And every quarter, and now I do it every month, and my husband and I do our own version of it with each other personally. We have a monthly check-in. But quarterly at least, uh, I will sit quietly, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, sometimes longer, and ask myself, if a hotshot took over my position today, any of us can define what a hotshot would be for sure. our role. Some, someone with complete badassery in our um, section Arena. of life or whatever it is. And if they were to take over my seat today, I can't send thank you notes. I can't clean up my desk, my emails, my calendar. What is one thing, only one thing, because the world's hard enough, don't need to beat myself <laughs> up. What is one thing that that person would do if they had my seat and look at and say, that's unacceptable, I'm fixing it immediately. And the funny thing is, we've all been that hotshot. We've all been the person taking over from someone else right. and seen something that was previously considered acceptable that we immediately improved. 
And the question is, why would that have to be an external hotshot? Why can't that be me? Mm. And so I play the play the game, do the analysis, and I immediately take action. I mean within minutes or hours. I book the flight, I make the phone call, wow. I um, hire the employee, I fire the employee, you know, whatever it is, there's something that uh, I have decided an outsider would clearly see that because of my own progress, I'm blind to. And I remember- How often do you do this? Um, well, monthly now, okay. I do it with my, hu my husband and I have monthly check-ins where we literally say, what is one thing that I, a, a badass, if they took over this seat as your wife would do differently um, to be more effective. That might mean doing more of something, yeah. you know, stop, start, continue. Um, but if for work, I'll do it at least quarterly. And then I tell my team, I did the hotshot rule. Here's the one thing I came up with that I think if some awesome human had this job, they would immediately do better than I'm doing right now. And I'm going to change it. And so one, it's extreme vulnerability. Um, two, I think it models behavior that says it's okay to keep getting better. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember when I was a Hooters girl and I became a trainer and all of a sudden I'm teaching people the rules. But of course I wasn't following all the rules as a waitress myself. But when I was in a position to teach, now I'm, you know, do as I say. Sure. And I remember one of the fellow employees saying, you're, you're telling her to call it you know, clean the bottles or clean the tables that way. You didn't always do it that way. <laughs> and like, you're right. And now I'm in a position where I have to teach. And yeah. you're right. I didn't do it well. I'm going to do it better yeah. myself now. So not getting trapped by people's perceptions of the fact that you, 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 did, you weren't previously doing something to a certain level doesn't mean you can't start now. And you got to give yourself the permission and forget everybody else who... I I think it's a, a rule that could benefit us all so much. And sometimes it's scary to look inside oh, and sure. scary to be that honest with yourself about your failures, but you will be so much better for it. Yeah. Right, I'm doing that this weekend. I'm scared <laughs> though. True that you used to sit in bathroom stalls at work and listen to colleagues' conversations about work? True. Yes. Why? Super true. Way true. So <laughs> it, was, it was mostly when I would teach workshops. And so I'm the leader, I'm the trainer. Yeah. And uh, I think part of it was because I just wanted to know the truth without judgment. Did they, uh, were they learning? Did they like the format? Was there anyone or anything that was distracting them from the content or the experience? And so it was, it was my early example of being so dedicated to curiosity and the truth that I was willing to just sit on the toilet longer than I needed to be in there so I could hear people <laughs> chatting. Now I only got the female perspective, obviously. Did you like hide your feet and all, and, and all of it? No, like I just sat like I was, you know, needed to be in there for a, a minute longer. But it was, it would be so powerful because I would hear what people would say, oh, well, this was really great. And I knew yeah. what to duplicate. Or hmm. they would say, oh, this, this person in the back is so distracting. And I knew what to watch. And I would yep. never, never use it against anyone. No, right. no matter what it was. I used it for good and not evil. Mm. And so they would, I could tell sometimes they would think, Oh, this is miraculously getting better um, because I'm. I just want to know the truth. Little and did they know they listen. were being spied on That's in the right. bathroom from the toilet. There you go. <laughs> you also have no qualms about digging through garbage cans to find <laughs> out what customers like and don't like so much. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah, it's really interesting when you're in a uh, a food or consumption business. It's not as easy in other industries, which I acknowledge, but one of the most important questions is what are we giving away, what are we selling, what are we providing or creating or investing in that the guest or customer actually doesn't value? Said another way, what ends up in the trash? Yeah. We spent labor, um, cost of goods dollars, time and energy to put together or have whatever it is we've presented to sure. the consumer for that price, and if it's continually being thrown away, 
then maybe it's something we shouldn't be providing that they don't need or they don't like the way we're doing it. And I, I learned that actually working as a waitress. You know, you'd clear plates and go, gosh, they... They didn't really they're, like they're leaving, <laughs> and it's not just one person. That's a pattern. And so I'd go to the manager or the kitchen and say, you know, we're throwing a lot of this away. I don't mm-hmm. think people like it, or maybe we shouldn't give so much. And that, it seems like such a simple behavior, but now I translate that mm-hmm. into more complex br- business processes to try to figure out what are we doing that's not adding value. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got our, you know, our, our presidents of our brands, and part of what we work on is to say, what does the consumer give us credit for? And what are we giving ourselves credit for that they actually don't care about at mm-hmm, all? Mm-hmm. So back to the staying super close to the customer. What's the hardest part and the best part of your new mm-hmm. position? The best part is the ability to shape culture in a more meaningful way. It's a larger role with more impact and influence and the ability to bring a more progressive culture to a traditional industry is just so rewarding. It is also the hardest part um, because as any CEO or COO or president will tell you, the, the higher up you go, the more layers there are between you yeah. and the end thing that shows up to the average employee or consumer. And you can't just be a bull in a china shop. You, you can't just be courage and confidence. There has to be a lot of humility and mm-hmm. curiosity. So the frustration is the time that it takes to truly have a sponsorship spine to have stakeholder management all throughout the process when sometimes you just want to go. Um, but the reality is you not only need that for change or innovation to be sticky, mm-hmm. but you also need the learning to shape what it is you believe is the right thing. What ends up happening at the end of a process is rarely, if ever, what I think it will be mm-hmm. at the beginning as a vision. Mm-hmm. It's shaped and tweaked and molded and colored mm-hmm. by all those who actually have to live it every day but it is I'm I like to move fast so I get a little I get a little frustrated sometimes this next question is one I'm always hesitant to ask because I hate being asked it however I think it's very important to talk about whether you like answering it or not and why Hmm. so the work-life balance debate Mm -hmm. my decision has been as as a new mom there is not balance it's a melding. Some days yeah. I am great at both. Most days I'm meh at both. <laughs> and some days I'm really bad at home or mm-hmm. really bad at my job or vice versa. And that's just my yeah. life. For you, where do you fall on that debate? And where's your head at right now? Yeah, I mean, we'll see, right? Once the baby's <laughs> here and real, it, I'm prepared for the unexpected. Uh, but where I've, where I've always been is... Um, I believe in first gut checking with your values. It's a little bit of my hotshot rule where what is most important to me? If it's family, if it's um, intellectual stimulation, if it's job growth, if it's financial security, where am I in my journey? It's so different for all of us, men or women, when you're 18 versus 24 versus 36 or heading into your 40s. And so I try to have a constant practice for me. Uh, where I check in with my values and ask, does my current situation, mm-hmm. work, policies, demands, relationship, uh, personal time, does it jive with my values? And if not, it's on me to make a change. And then I think because I saw my mom you know, work three jobs, yeah. raise three. I mean, you should see these pictures. It's like three little ducklings, you know, following her around by herself. To, yeah. It's to really think about that and knowing how hard one child is, much less three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, gosh, I just, I want to make sure that I'm spending the time on the things that are, that are most 
important, and I totally agree. I've used this almost exact words that you do, which is harmony, not balance. Yeah. Um, and permission to not be awesome. Even in my personal life without a child, some like days that. I'm a... I'm amazing at work, and I'm, I'm, which sometimes means being there late and sometimes doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I'm more amazing at home, and that might mean taking time away from work. But I've also learned there are ways to have your priorities and values together where I could probably get more done at work faster if oh, I keep those wait. values You're in mind. You're going to be the most efficient person. <laughs> I can't wait. You just don't even know how efficient yeah. you're going to be. So I'm all about harmony, not balance, and just not being too hard on yourself. Yeah. Again, the world Forgive is so hard. Yeah, there's no reason to be your your toughest critic every day. That's a really good point. On the minimum wage debate, Mm -hmm. you come at this from some really interesting angles, not only being such a high-ranking executive in a company that has so many franchisees and Mm -hmm. so many hourly workers, right, in in the fast food space, also your mom. Yeah. And it sounds like clearly your mom did not have a quote unquote living wage because she had to have three jobs to get by. Totally. Where do you fall on that? Yeah, I think we've talked about in previous interviews, you know, I I have a more personal progressive position where I think the world is different today than it was when my mom was raising three girls. Um, There weren't as many underemployed people in developed communities as there are today. The income gap, the income disparity was not as severe as it is today. So whether or not living wage is the answer or some of the other solutions that have been thrown around, the, the, the layer I put on it is first that of um, care for our society, healthy people, do no harm. Second, from a private sector perspective, if you pay more, you should get better people. There is a capitalist argument for higher wages, but it also means you have to be a better manager to get good work out of people you're paying more. Mm. And so I talk with our franchisees quite a bit about this. You know, they're small business owners with food costs going up and down, healthcare expenses going up, um, competition radically growing because of lowered barriers to entry to starting your own business, which hurts top line sales. And all of the technology and expenses that are increasing to just run a tiny little snack business. Mm -hmm. And so for them, they're saying, where does it, I'm going to go out of business. And so the conversation we're having is back to this compromises you can be comfortable with in the name of progress. You're not going to get there tomorrow. You're not going to go from nine. We have to do something, it sounds like you're saying. And not just something, something constantly. Constant progress. And then monitoring what is the return on that. Right. Uh, The food debate, you've also been a very loud voice in all things in moderation. Everyone knows Cinnabons, for example, or on Annie's, you name it, are not calorie-free. We go into this fully aware. Here in New York, the calories are all posted for us. Um, How have you wrestled with that? How do you want America to look at that? Because people can't necessarily see you right now, but you're in, like, the ultimate shape. (laughs) But you eat this stuff in moderation. In moderation. To the critics that say you shouldn't be able to sell something that big with that many calories, or you shouldn't be able to drink a soda that big, or we're going to tax it, you say? I say, one, we are in a free market society, and so there is a market for indulgence. The question is, how is it done? Is it quality ingredients? Are those that are sort of uh, providing more indulgence, being honest about what they are? When I took over Cinnabon, I went on national television and said, do not eat it every day. Please, please don't eat it every day. But man, when you're in the rare mood to be bad, come to us. It's made with real sugar and real fat. That was risky. Um, Yeah, it didn't feel like it because it's true. 
Like, what do you, you know, you're, <laughs> it doesn't feel, Amen. it doesn't feel risky. When I talk to my friends, that's the way we would talk. It's like, no, I, I shouldn't eat this every day. On the other hand, you could go to any sandwich shop, burrito shop, and you could eat really good for you, or you could eat a little more fun for you. Yep. And on one hand, there's a level of personal accountability that's needed. I also believe a lot in public education. I like menu labeling. I like having the information available to consumers so they make informed and educated choices because it puts the onus on the company where if you are in the indulgence category, like we are, especially with Cinnabon or ice cream with Carvel or Auntie Anne's, it puts the onus on you to make sure it, it better be delicious. <laughs> you know, That's it better be true. so worth it. And you better be making it with insanely high quality ingredients in order to justify that indulgence, both the investment of discretionary income and the investment of discretionary calories, fat, sugar, all of those things. But I'm also really excited about where Focus Brands is going with other brands that we have that are have menus that are more plant-based, that have more healthy ways to eat, so Moe's and Schlotzky's and McAllister's, and the world is moving there. So making sure we offer that diversified portfolio is also a super fun part of being a part of Focus. Do you, Cat Cole, want to be CEO one day? Mm. We'll see. I love the idea of translating my skills to different industries. You know, when I when I started at Cinnabon, I was president of Cinnabon and then moved into Global Channels, which was moving from food service to more CPG yeah. licensing, you know, that more brand and product side. And now I'm now I'm running both and multiple brands, so it's blending those together. But I could see myself evolving into other parts of retail or hospitality over time. Our CEO will definitely be there for a few years and we make a, a really great so duo. perhaps my question should have been a CEO one day. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I've got, because I'm so progressive in the startup world, sometimes my yeah. friends will say, why don't you just go start your own um, healthy food chain or high social impact business. And on one hand, I, look, I've turned down a lot of CEO opportunities, small, mid-sized companies and some pretty high level opportunities nice for larger companies. It's, it is an absolute honor to be considered for those things. But when I see the impact that I can have in a large organization, yeah. right now, I feel that I am a bridge person. Where I'm a bridge, I mean, look, I'm a burner. I have my wedding ring tattooed. And I Love that, had a one night stand with my husband and then we got married. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm a super hippie. So I'm this bridge person between these worlds. And I love both the opportunity and the responsibility to be in a setting that's more commercial. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got these brands we've talked about, indulgent brands, franchise mm -hmm. business, hourly workers. Um, I like the idea of being in something big that needs to be moved. It's hard. Yeah. It's emotional. Um, it's highly complex, more so than anyone can realize when you're a set of big brands that are basically run by tiny business owners. But I love that challenge. I want to be in that, which is why I haven't gone off to be a CEO of a smaller company mm -hmm. that would be easier to just flip a switch and turn it or something that's already kind of nice and sexy and high growth. Like That's easy. No offense. But it's, you know, that's yeah. the easier stuff. Yeah. Um, being in a an set of established brands, Carvel being over 80 years old, Moe's just over 10 launching into multiple channels, our, our business developing in over 60 countries, yeah. that I'm still building muscle. And I love that opportunity. But certainly I'll, I'll run a few things yet. I have no <laughs> doubt about that. You've also talked more increasingly in recent years about wanting to have a larger social and humanitarian impact over time. Yeah. So what do you think that means? Yeah. Right now, well, the last 10 years, I've done a lot of independent humanitarian yes. work, Eastern Africa and in the United States. 
And then about a year and a half ago, I joined the United Nations Global Entrepreneurs Council, small group of private sector leaders who are looking to bridge the world between entrepreneurship, private sector, and the world's biggest problems. Right now, the refugee crisis is the main one we've been focused on. And spending time in Jordan, working with the team on enabling everything from apps that connect refugees to uh, local families, to providing tools and education that help educate populations that might have not so accurate perceptions of refugees or the refugee crisis. Those are the things that feed my soul. And I think over time, that work will only become a bigger part of my life. I might not go to the Syrian border uh, again, like I was just well, not you, too long ago with a little baby. Now depending on um, you. But I will do great advocacy work, and when he's old enough, I would love to go back take him to those you, areas. And take him with you. Totally. And show him. Yeah, exactly. Politics. Yeah. You have been outspoken on politics <laughs> before. <laughs> But I'm wondering if you might want to run one day. Yeah, I get asked that uh, quite a bit. And never say never because public service is such a, you know, the biggest job of all. You kind of like mom at the top and public service probably two or three behind that. A true politician's answer, by the way, never (laughs) say never. You're already off to a really great start. Yeah, I just, um, you know, right now I want to be where I have the biggest impact. And I feel that by being this bridge person, being more progressive and socially minded, but totally speaking the language of global business, that I can have far more impact in both areas and while being personally still very authentic and outspoken. So I don't hide behind my brands, but Mm -hmm. I'm also not, I'm not a full-time activist and I'm Mm -hmm. not a crazy full-time capitalist. I'm in between. So right now, I don't see that happening, but But never say never. Every CEO that I ask, I asked Ursula Burns, former CEO of Xerox this week. I've asked Howard Schultz before. Uh, so many CEOs say something very similar, and that is they feel like they can affect more change yeah. from the corner office than a seat in Congress. And the fact that they think that yeah. to some Americans is worrying and troublesome because they think some of the best and brightest have no interest. Yeah. You know, it is. And even when I hear myself say that and answer the question, I think, but that's part of the problem, right? You have, on, on one hand, the people you'd love to have more of a role in government are saying, I can affect more change from here. And so what does that mean? Does that mean it doesn't change? Mm-hmm. I hope it doesn't. Um, you know, you look at, one, the scrutiny that politicians and their families go through. And the, the difficulty of that is a massive personal sacrifice. And so, so there's that. Then there is the role of money in politics and how jacked up that has become. And so you put all those pieces together and go, yeah, it's kind of unattractive. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, I feel a sense of responsibility to stay connected to politics. So instead of completely disassociating Mm -hmm. and say, I'm going to make an impact, screw them, they're not doing enough, still staying connected to say, look, I I might not want to be in your seat, Senator, legislator, representative. Um, however, I want to be at your table. And I think that is all, that is bridging to being just as effective, where you're starting to get the right people at the table to make those leaders who are willing to make that personal sacrifice, who are putting themselves in a public servant role, to help them be more effective. We have a responsibility as people to do that as well. We do. Yeah. So final question. Um, I'm so excited for you about your next (laughs) chapter and your next journey and meeting your little man. Thank you. What are you looking forward to most? Oh, God. I get emotional thinking about it. Um, You know, I think just the the extra layer of awesomeness and meaning, seeing my 
I get so emotional I thinking know. about it. It's so great. Just wait till you have him in your arms. <laughs> I know. You know, seeing my my husband be a dad for the first time, I mean, like, holy shit, it's going to be amazing. Um, and, and then really curious about that inner uh, extra warrior princess, that motherhood that you just see bring Mama out bear. in women. Um, the extra power, the extra layer, the, I didn't even know that that was within me. And, um, and, and just being able to see that and live it and appreciate it and, and bring that experience forward in leadership and hopefully continuing to, to be a, a better leader and influencer. Mm-hmm. Um, but gosh, just being able to have a family, you know, it's such a, um, such a gift and such it's something that so many struggle with. And um, so I, you know, I don't take it for granted. I'm just looking forward to that. Alone. And to meeting him yeah. and getting to know him. Cat so Cole, thank exciting. you. I'm so excited for you. Thank you so Enjoy much. Enjoy the ride. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a fan of the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.